0: Hello everyone and welcome to Android Bytes powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddock and each week I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Rotman diving deep into the world of Android, Android devices and Android development. This week on the show we're going to get into an area that I think really doesn't get a lot of attention despite the fact that globally it's an issue that's relevant to more people than many other issues in Android which is the issue of device memory and specifically devices that ship with a very small amount of memory these typically lower cost smartphones. We have a couple people joining us today on the show who actually both been on the show previously, and I'll allow Michelle to introduce our guests
1: and their relevant expertise. Thanks, David. So on today's episode, we have Nolan Johnson, who previously joined us on the episode about Android TV, and we have Sean Hoyt, who previously joined us on last week's episode about Wear OS. So thank you for joining us, Nolan and Sean,
2: and why don't you both give us a brief introduction about who you are and where you work. My name is Nola Johnson. I work for Direct Defense, which is a cyber auditing firm. My division is Connected Systems. We focus mainly on uh, integrated devices, Android devices, a lot of the time, and uh, smaller IoT devices.
3: I'm Sean Hoyt. I work at Renewal by Anderson primarily doing their uh, electrical mechanical work, as well as doing Android development for their Android powered industrial arms.
1: For anyone who follows you online, they may be familiar with your work on the Lineage Android project, which is the By far the most popular fork of AOSP, you know, the distribution or what people call custom ROMs on the internet. So both of you are very familiar with porting AOSP to devices. And both of you have worked on devices that are not considered mainstream, especially Sean here, who does a lot of work on very niche hardware. And it wouldn't be fair to say low RAM devices are niche because they're very, very not niche. They're incredibly popular, as David mentioned. But most of the Android community, the Android enthusiasts, tinkerers, journalists, etc., like those of us who are on this show right now, probably don't use low RAM hardware on a day-to-day basis because we have access to much better devices in terms of hardware. But because these devices are so incredibly popular, it's such an important topic to discuss because Google... As a company, they have to architect Android to account for both low RAM devices and high-end devices. So there's a lot of different considerations they have to make that are invisible to most Android enthusiasts that I think are worth talking about just because of how important it is to the Android platform. So just for a bit of background, the very first Android phone on the market, the HTC Dream or the T-Mobile G1, as it was known in the US, shipped with just 192 megabytes of RAM back in 2008. The very, very, very beginnings of Android. Of course, memory capacities and pretty much everything else has scaled a lot since then. And now we have phones like the Asus ROG Phone 5 with 18 gigabytes of RAM. Just a crazy staggering increase since then. But even in today, 2022, most of the phones and tablets that are shipping in terms of the number of SKUs that are launching on the market have low amounts of RAM. CounterPoint Research actually put out a report saying that Samsung's Galaxy A12 was the best-selling Android phone in 2021. It was surpassed by individual iPhone models, but of the Android devices on the list, that was the best-selling device. And that phone ships at a base with two gigabytes of RAM. And I'm willing to bet that most people who bought that device probably picked the base model because that's just how things go. It's the cheapest model. And people don't generally upsell themselves to get something unless that was pushed on them. I actually looked at the Google Play console just to verify for myself, you know, how prevalent are low RAM devices today. And their device catalog lets you put a lot of filters on. You can see what devices have X or Y amount of RAM, when they launched, what kind of device it is. And using that data, I estimate that about 76% of new tablet SKUs and 54% of new phone SKUs released in 2021 shipped with three gigabytes or less of RAM. And three gigabytes isn't even the threshold that Google considers to be low RAM. But for us here, anything under four gigs is too little for day to day use. (laughs) So I kind of wanted to ask before we dive into like the, uh, architecturing of Android for low RAM devices, I wanted to ask what is your personal experience using low end Android devices? Like, what do you consider the bare amount of RAM for an acceptable experience?
2: It can really vary. Honestly, it depends what SoC you're pairing it with. Uh, a large part of it. So if we talk about a lower end SoC in an older phone, say the Galaxy S4, which is definitely low RAM by today's standards, you're looking at a much different pairing than a more modern processor. Say your common mid-range Snapdragon chips, you know, with that same low RAM configuration.
3: Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. The actual amount after you get above about a gig, gig and a half, the experience is about the same. Until you start getting into that four, five, six gig where you just have no RAM problems for the most part. But if you have less than half a gig, it becomes a pretty large performance issue. The app you just left will probably not be open. And that's just infuriating for everyone. <laughs> And
0: I think modernly, just from the consumer perspective, there's a lot of the megapixel game that happens with RAM where people start thinking more is better, more gets me more apps in memory, which means faster experience because things aren't constantly reloading. But there is obviously a point of diminishing returns on the other side of it, which isn't really what we're talking about today. But there is like you guys suggest, I think there's that sweet spot. And I mean, I'm guessing you all would agree, it's more a matter of optimization than it is necessarily the actual number attached to until you get down to those really, really low numbers. For example, when Google makes its A series Pixel phones, it gets by with a pretty modest amount of RAM or it did initially. Then they kind of backtracked on that because Google actually isn't the best at managing memory sometimes. But in general, I think it comes down to how the device is optimized, at least from an end consumer perspective. Now, when we get down to these kind of, which we'll get into these Android Go edition phones, things start changing very rapidly because you start having real constraints, whereas four or five gigs of RAM, it's really just a matter of, well, what are you doing with it? That you need that much RAM constantly available. And some people may have a good reason, but in general, I would agree with that sentiment, I do not think about RAM ever. Even if an app goes out of memory, I wouldn't think RAM. I would think, okay, somebody's written this badly, or the app's misbehaving, or I'm on the Android 13 beta and things are just broken. I would not be like, oh, I ran out of memory. Granted, some people um, named Artem online constantly do (laughs) out of memory on the Android. So, uh, you know, it's hard to say how people use their phones.
1: No, I actually think a bit differently. I feel like, I know this is considered maybe out of the norm, but I feel like Six gigabytes of RAM for me is the acceptable threshold for a very good experience. The last time I used a phone with four gigs of RAM was the OnePlus Nord N10. And I'm not sure if it was the SOC that was a problem, but I frequently encountered experiences where the device would close out apps you know, out of memory. And I'm not sure if it's just because of the way OnePlus optimized its memory management policies to keep things like the launcher in memory, the camera in memory, But I feel like there's a lot of things you expect to quickly launch up and quickly be available on a modern Android device that you kind of need a lot of excess memory to allocate those processes to constantly be in memory, like the launcher, as I mentioned, the camera. And as camera processing gets more and more complicated, that takes up memory. When you're stacking frames, Google's HDR plus camera algorithm, right? That takes up, you look up how much memory the Google camera is taking up when it's doing all that in the background, it's a lot. So it's like no surprise that things get closed whenever you're doing complex camera algorithms and processing. And of course, like apps keep getting more complex, web pages keep getting more complex. So like the need for more memory keeps increasing, even though devices necessarily aren't scaling up to meet those requirements. So it's nice as a consumer to have a high-end phone with pretty much unlimited amounts of memory to not have to ever worry about that. But then when you try to use a phone with limited amounts of memory, the same way you use a flagship, you quickly encounter these problems because you're so used to using a device in one way then you're thinking, oh, wait, I can't multitask with 10 different apps and like 15 different Chrome tabs like I used to, right? It's a, it's a very different way of thinking, way of using your device.
2: You mentioned OnePlus. OnePlus is notorious for pinning pretty much everything in memory. So you've mentioned the camera app, you've mentioned the launcher. If you have a look at the OnePlus frameworks, they pin everything. So although you have a device with maybe six gigs of RAM, you're getting like at least two gigs I've seen on some of their more higher flagship ones, like two gigs of RAM dedicated purely to apps pinned in memory. Which you might scoff at that, but you look at the camera applications, like 150 megabytes and they pin that as well as critical services for it. So you're looking at like almost a third of a gig pinned for just camera applications and camera processes. And the Android go side and uh, on the lower end device side, we're seeing more and more people not choosing to pin that camera application and lineage is even doing it to a large extent. You'll see a lot of people intentionally not pinning the camera application on devices that use larger cameras, like the roller camera or something like that. And that's really helpful to help keep that initial threshold barrier down. Just like if you have a 16 gig EMMC chip, you're not actually getting 16 gigs of usable storage, you're getting 12. Same thing with RAM, but you're looking at the processes that have to be pre-shoved into memory, so. so going back to your point about the SSC and the OnePlus device, that
3: specific phone does have a MediaTek processor. And even with MediaTek's newer immensely tricks, it still is very aggressive on what it kills. And it even goes down to the level of it kills background services or critical services of apps that are marked as ones that you shouldn't kill. They'll still kill. MediaTek primarily does that because it makes it so you don't see the performance losses that they have in a lot of their uh, higher end like benchmarks and stuff, because you'll never get to that state
2: because they'll just never allow the app to get there. You know, the funny part, there's the low memory killer in OS versus in kernel. So you're looking at like the super, you're looking at if you think about like the day manager and the general manager, you know, the day manager might shuffle things around, organize them and have some ability to optimize the process. But the overall manager is the one that at the end is saying, no, nope, you're fired, you're gone, you're fired, you're gone. And OnePlus especially has a really heavy hand from the high level, as opposed to some other OEMs like Google, who use almost purely the user space one that's much more kind about how it does things.
1: Yeah. And if you're wondering, anyone who's listening, like how MediaTek is involved in this process is because, as we've mentioned on the show before, is because like the way Android is distributed, it goes from AOSP to Silicon vendors. You create a BSP and the AOSP build within those BSPs is not just pure AOSP. They also ship a whole bunch of custom proprietary libraries. A lot of performance related stuff too, like CAF, Qualcomm's field of Android is notorious for including a whole lot of performance related libraries and tweaks to the way Android runs. So... You're not just getting whatever Google shipped in Android in an AOSP and the fresh off the kernel.org Linux kernel. You're getting a lot of MediaTek add-ons or Qualcomm add-ons on top of that. Generally, whenever chipset it has, it has a lot of performance-related add-ons from the Silicon vendor. But, of course, a lot of those additions are heavily proprietary, and we have really no idea exactly how they work. So that's why we're mostly focusing on the AOSP side of things and what Google actually opens up for platform developers to see in AOSP. So speaking of platform development, because Google, they are responsible for shipping Android and maintaining Android for billions of devices with all kinds of hardware, they have to make sure AOSP runs not just on high-end devices with 8 gigabytes or more RAM, but also on devices with 2 gigs or less RAM. And over time, from the early days of Android, as devices kept getting more and more RAM, it became apparent that Android was running worse on devices with less RAM. And around the time of Android 4.4 KitKat, Google finally said enough, we're gonna make Android work better on low end hardware. So with KitKat, they introduced something called Project Svelte, and the goal was to get Android to run on devices with as little as 512 megabytes of RAM, which was of course common several years ago, but at that time was considered very low for devices because the test device, the developer device that Google was shipping at the time, the Nexus 4, had two gigabytes of physical memory available to it. So in order to actually test and make Android KitKat more optimized for devices with 512 megabytes or less they had to actually hack the nexus 4 to make it seem like as a lower resolution display and give it less ram available to the system so it was like a frankenstein nexus 4 that was heavily nerfed so they could actually test what android kitkat would run like how it would run on that device and in order to actually to get it to run properly they had to do so many optimizations they had to rewrite framework code and their own apps so that use less memory they did something to make Android launch Android services launch serially, i.e., in small groups. They introduced developer tools so that developers could measure the memory use of their own apps. They introduced a whole bunch of configuration options that OEMs could change to tweak the out-of-memory killer. They could tweak the graphics cache size. They could tweak a bunch of other things. So it's been a while since I have looked up what projects felt changed, but both of you have years of experience developing for ASP and like bringing ASP devices. So like. Do you remember much about Project Svelte or, you know, what the experience was like using a phone
2: with low RAM around or before that time? I had a, uh, an LG Optimus slider. It was uh, MSM seven, 7 or 7,000 series, very old, you know, pre the, the fun stuff. A uh, 512 megabytes of RAM. And that thing was awful, truly awful. It was on gingerbread upgraded via custom ROM to ICS. And it was funny because as we got higher and higher you know we got up to kitkat and that's where a lot of legacy devices met their end such as that family but at kitkat the very final version Project felt you know we enabled it kind of for kicks and obviously there was a lot that had to go along with it you know a lot of changes that had to be made but from the user experience side it was actually darn impressive they did a lot of decompression on disk sort of thing so instead of decompressing it and having to deal with the overhead of decompressing parts of the framework in memory they were actually pre-extracting that and it was an overall larger ROM. So we had to repartition the device, et cetera, but having everything read from disk, as opposed to having to be decompressed and then dealt with was really impressive. Additionally, they did a ton of really interesting, and it's funny how we come full circle on things. Google started compressing kernels and then they've decompressed them over the years. We see this kind of cyclical change set, but back then all the rage was getting it as decompressed as you could in memory so that you didn't have to worry about the overhead of decompressing it into memory. And all those really did lead to a, I don't call it impressive, but an acceptable experience on that pretty awful device. So from a user perspective, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I must've worked on a user phone that was before 4.4, but
3: at the moment I can't remember, I felt what the, like the name of that phone was, but I delved deep into low memory when I was at Blocks. Cause we were shipping a product that had 512 megabytes of RAM. <laughs> And we were trying to get Android 5.1, 6, 7.1, and 8.1 working. And after um, Android 6, um, we ran into just unending amounts of memory problems. But going back to Spelt, in my experience, Spelt is a great easy button. You press the easy button and you get noticeable improvements. But
2: when you're physically running out of memory, there's a lot more that you need to do to actually fix it. From uh, the, the spell perspective, another use case, we're talking with the Nexus player, that device was intentionally shipped with low end specs because it's a streaming device not intended for much more. The issue with felt is that it, it for from, you know, the devil's advocate side talking about things that are kind of bad about it. Nowadays, that flag it, it kind of becomes associated with overly aggressive management. And not just overly aggressive management, but to the point that it strips some functionality. And it's not high in functionality, but it's performance stuff. So if we look at the Nexus player, for example, the largest reason it can't run modern versions of Android is that you either have to run it in Svelte or it's not going to run well enough to use. And if you run it in Svelte, the proprietary binaries don't play nicely because of all of the optimizations they rely on. It could be a catch 22 when you rely on optimization like that. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So it seems like it's definitely not a free way to optimize your build for low memory constraints, because as you mentioned, there are some caveats that come into play. But one of the things that I've seen in recent years that OEMs kind of treat it as like a free way to increase your RAM. A lot of high-end devices coming from, I know it's not just China, but Samsung does this too. They start to ship features called virtual RAM, which basically extends the amount of memory that's available to the system. I know, I know you guys are kind of like shrugging your heads at this right now, (laughs) but this concept is really old. It actually extends quite far back because Android and the underlying Linux kernel and other operating systems don't only look at the available physical memory when it comes to memory management. They also consider virtual memory, which can be stored on the storage device, or it can be stored in RAM as like a blocked compressed device. So we call that ZRAM when it's stored in RAM, like compressed in RAM. And then when it's part of storage, you call that swap space. That's a very basic understanding of swap and ZRAM. Of course, it gets much more complicated when you consider how processes of pages are swapped in and out of those devices. How Linux decides when to move pages in and out of the swap space and the ZRAM or Z swap disks. There's a lot of other considerations, but I wanted to ask both of you: How effective do you consider these techniques in improving the overall user experience? Have they gotten more or less useful over time? Considering we're seeing them now being used in marketing materials,
2: I'll let Sean go first on this one because I know he's going to have a a fun perspective on so this. I'll give the good perspective. <laughs> okay,
3: so. In my experience, memory compression is your best bet to save a lot of space, but as with everything you do too much and then you're just going to be thrashing yourself, so you're going to get even less performance because your RAM is going to be constantly uncompressing and compressing constantly back and forth and back and forth, and that's not good, (laughs) obviously. From the virtual memory perspective, there's benefits and bad things about it, in my experience, it doesn't help a lot because you are going from your CPU to an unimaginably slower interface, obviously in user's case, it doesn't really feel like it's that slow, but in computer terms, it's so much slower to have all of your RAM on the disc and that will slow everything
2: down, it doesn't matter what it is. If we talk about it from two perspectives, let's talk about it from the legacy device perspective and the modern device perspective, because you can't compare them. From the legacy device perspective, what it looked like was your device runs out of memory and it's either going to turn off, or it's going to kill a critical process that takes the system down, or alternatively, we can stuff it into a space on the disk and your device will keep running, albeit slower, because we were limited on resources back then. So over the years, people, and I know if you, again, if you look at Lineage's tracker, Google's tracker, they use ZRAM, they move away from ZRAM, it's kind of an oscillation. As we got towards more performant devices with more memory, we pulled back on ZRAM and so we're going to lower those values. I think the Nexus 6 p had 512 megabytes of ZRAM, which was notably less than some of the prior iterations uh, because they didn't need it. They had space and memory to play with. And ZRAM is, it can be, I will call it performant, but it can be effective at what it's there for, which is preventing things from out of memory at preventing things from causing you to run out of memory. Not just that, calculating what processes can stand to be moved to Sean at that slower medium. And Now nowadays we're kind of back on the oscillation up that curve, looking at UFS, which is actually significantly faster. It's a, not as fast as RAM, obviously, but it's notably faster. If you're going to get more performance there, and you also have more RAM in these newer devices. Or some of the popular ones have a, a mid-range amount, and they're using it kind of as a balancing act in combination to say, okay, we're going to give it the bare minimum it needs to be performant, and then we're going to use this extra space to allow slower processes and things that you may not notice get offload. With that said, there are definitely, definitely caveats. And what has been done recently where the user can drag their little slider to get themselves virtual RAM, the end user has no reason to do that and should not be doing that. The calculations done at the factory are going to be your best bet.
1: But you can download more RAM by increasing the slider. Why wouldn't you you do it? yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember back in the early days, like the very early days of like XDA and modding, people did crazy things. I remember... Creating a swap disk on the SD card. People were actually using that just because the experience back then was so slow. You had such limited amounts of actual physical memory. You'd do anything to increase the amount of total virtual memory available to the OS and kernel. But of course, nowadays, you know, you look at that and it's like, what the, What in the world were we thinking doing back then? You know, we have much more efficient techniques, ways of actually compressing. You can compress pages into memory with ZRAM. You can actually offload it to faster UFS disks with swap. But the goal was to avoid doing both of those as much as possible. The goal is to actually reduce how much memory system processes use up, how much memory apps and processes use up and like to, to detect when you actually don't have enough memory to turn off certain things and to optimize what apps are running on the device. So that's the intention behind one of the key changes Google actually introduced with Svelte, which is an API for apps to detect when they're running on a device that has little amounts of RAM it's called the is low ram device method under the activity manager and docs say that this is supposed to return true whenever the device has low amounts of ram but of course what constitutes low depends on the kind of device you're talking about if it's a phone anything below two gigs of ram i'd say is low but the docs say you know anything below one gig is generally low for watches or tvs the definition is going to be slightly different google actually has some definitions like some requirements around what constitutes a low RAM device, even though they don't mention it in the Java doc there, the compatibility definition document, the CD, which I'm sure you've heard about if you read the Esper blog, mentions that any handheld devices, i.e. phones or tablets, must return true and declare that they're a low RAM device if they have less than one gigabyte of memory available. And the way OEMs actually make this happen is they define the feature RAM low property. And this is used throughout the OS and throughout apps as a check on whether or not to disable or enable certain features and applications can themselves use it too. Like say a video chat application can say, I'm running on a low RAM device. I should not make these background blur effects available because that uses too much memory or, you know, like Snapchat can say, I don't want these filters available on this device. Cause that's too much memory for this low RAM device to handle. So I wanted to ask you, Nolan and Sean, both of you have previously brought up this low RAM flag in our discussion. What are some of the things that are disabled or changed when this low RAM flag is actually flipped on? Like what happens to the OS?
2: There are several layers to look at. There's the native layer, the Java and Android layer, and there's going to be the low level firmware layer. If we look at the Java layer, Dalvik and art, those terms get thrown around a lot. It's the compiler for the Java code, so that's being run on the device. The Dalvik flags change significantly. So the way and the intensity with which we're compiling these Java apps on the fly is changed when you set that flag. So we're talking about the way that they're optimized, the way that they're loaded into memory the way they're handled. That's it, you know, the the Android layer. And if we look at the native layer, we're going to be looking at typical compiler flags, you know, and this is Android Go targets because there's a property and a flag. So the flag set at the build time, and then there's the property set at runtime. So the flag set at build time, instead of saying, let's let this be as big as it can be and run as performant as it can, it's going to say, let's save as much space as we can in memory and optimize this as much as we can. So the compiler options change. And then lastly, from uh, the firmware layer, you look at several layers of, I won't call them features, but uh, value adds, that get disabled. Things you might not ever notice, like seamless handoff for telephony stuff. Tiny bits of things that are together add to a cohesive experience, like what we see on flagships. Those are disabled because that extra second of hiccup between a call or that extra second of ducking of audio, the non-smooth audio occur uh, when you pause a song, for example, or something fades out, you wouldn't notice that. But what you would notice is your music application crashing. some
3: other, going more toward on the native side, some of the features are nice to have center disabled are, for example, when Daydream VR was a thing, Daydream would be disabled on low RAM devices because it couldn't handle the overhead needed for it. One of the other ones that I know can be annoying at times is like cell broadcast app is disabled on low RAM. It just boggles my mind that the emergency response system is disabled on low RAM devices, at least it used to be. I don't know about on the last two or three versions, but at least in the back of the day, it was disabled. Yeah,
1: that's certainly a strange decision. And I hope that's not true for modern versions of Android Go edition. Speaking of Go edition, we brought it up several times, but For those of you who don't know, Go Edition was introduced with Android 8.1 as a new variant of Android. It's basically a stripped down version of GMS Android for phones and tablets with two gigs or less of RAM. So Go Edition is not the same thing as like Android One. It's not in the same vein, even though many people try to like conflate the two. It's not like a program that OEMs sign up for and say, we want this branding to be here, so we're gonna sign on to these agreements. It's more so a build of Android that's optimized for low RAM devices and includes a special set of GMS applications. So in that sense, it's true that OEMs do have to opt in to Android Go in that they're choosing to do so when they ship a device with a certain amount of RAM. In fact, Google's GMS requirements, I believe, state that any device with two gigs or less of RAM have to actually use Android Go. So it's not like an option for OEMs. If they're shipping a device with less than two gigs of RAM, it has to use Android Go edition. If they want GMS, that is, you know, if, if you're going AOSP, then, you know, you make the rules. And to clarify, this is just for phones, because there is no
0: go equivalent for TVs or wearables or cars.
2: That's true. That's true. Quick note from the TV side. It's not necessarily the TVs don't have Android Go. It's the TVs at this point kind of are focused on Android mm-hmm. Go. You look at the ASCII boxes and, you know, like the AT3, it's a low spec device compared to just what everything else. And it uses most the same underlying functions, so...
0: Yeah, that's a good distinction to make is that in a lot of areas like TV, you know, Android is kind of gravitated toward the lowest common denominator hardware, whereas in phones, you have much more segmentation happening. So yeah, totally valid point. I
3: also just wanted to talk about, cause we talk about Android Go and it being Google thing and only if you do like certified, most of the Android Go optimizations are actually open source. So you can have it be inherited on any device. And you get all those benefits without having to worry about Google apps or anything like that. Yeah. That's what OEMs have been doing for
1: years before Android Go was a thing, you know, from 4.4 4 all the way to 8.0. If you wanted to ship Android on low RAM devices, you could enable the low RAM flags, optimize away as much as you want, but you'd still get full GMS apps that are, you know, they do account for those low RAM flags and are optimized in a certain way, but they weren't built with low RAM in mind. That's what Go does differently. All those apps, the GMS Go apps are built with Go Edition in mind. So they strip out a lot of code, a lot of features to make it run as low memory requirements as possible. And they also disable a whole bunch of features that you'd find on normal Android devices, like live wallpapers, notification access APIs, screen overlays, which are like the apps that can display on top of another ones, or picture-in-picture. In general, a lot of multitasking features are disabled, which is one of the things that needs a lot of RAM, multitasking. And that's why televisions and smartwatches don't need a lot of RAM because they're unitaskers. They're pretty much focused on one thing on screen at a time. But if you see an Android Go device, it went through a big certification process, just like any GMS Android device. The OEMs had to meet a whole bunch of requirements in order to be licensed to ship GMS Go apps. They had to sign a special MADA addendum that certifies that I'm meeting all these requirements. They have to do a whole bunch of tests, like they have to make sure that Opening the dialer and placing a phone call, for example, ensures that this app doesn't consume too much memory. Like it doesn't exceed hundred megabytes of memory use. Like there's a whole bunch of things they have to do. So while it's true, as Sean mentioned, a lot of the Android Go configurations can be enabled when compiling AOSP. What you're missing when you do that is the special suite of GMS Go apps. And of course, as anyone looking to ship Android will tell you, one of the biggest things to overcome is app distribution and app availability and Without access to Google play services and Google play store, you have to find ways to manage those on your own. And for most companies, that's a, that's a hard sell to manage all that on your own.
2: You know, along that through thought we could talk about the initial, we were talking about the difference between brand management back in the days of KitKat to now. Back then we were looking at a lot of mainly build time focused change. So these were things that had to be done at the build time. Nowadays, we're looking at a hybrid combination of built-time changes, like what I was talking about, and the run type changes, like what you were talking about, where the application that's actually served to you via Google Play is a different one than you would have seen otherwise. I know on some phones, you can go grab the Android Go version, regardless if you want the smaller app, but you know, some devices, that's what you get served. You get Dialer Go, you get all the smaller apps, and those are intentionally both smaller from a size perspective and smaller with their memory footprint. The issue there runs in Google has Go apps, but are other developers implementing that flag correctly? Are they going to use that? Is it going to be extended out? Which is always kind of the, the big question with Android is is this API actually used by the wider world? And I really hope it does because it's impressed me so far.
1: Nolan, you mentioned earlier that Svelte is actually like a nice flag you can enable to optimize Android. I wanted to ask you and Sean, because both of you have experience developing and contributing to the Lineage project, how has Android Go helped? if any, to like improve your work porting Android to older devices with less amounts of RAM available.
2: We've stolen the configurations from Go. I mean, point case, the Dalvik stuff I mentioned earlier, the low memory killer stuff and moving to user space, low memory killer, Compilation style flags, everything like that. We've taken all that, but we have not flipped the switch to actually do Android Go builds. And there are two big reasons for that. One, users did not seem to like the idea of it in initial surveying, and that may just be a stigma. Lower-end devices, I don't know. The other half is managing multiple Google apps packages, It's a little touchy for our project. So, um, trying to work around the need for that is definitely big because it requires a completely different set. We'd have, to, we would basically have to make and manage our own, which is not something many of our developers want to do.
3: From the Android Go side of things. In my experience, it's actually helped a lot with older or legacy devices, because having this Android Go stuff makes it so that it's actually a decent or okay experience on those older devices on the newer OSS, like Nolan mentioned earlier. So I I really liked it so far and it does help that Lineage and any one that's based on Lineage has all that set up for you out of the box. So you can just click one flag and boom, you have got all of these great optimizations.
0: And Google also just has a a vested business interest in this and also making it accessible because the more devices out there that are behaving in a way that Google has architected, even if they're devices that are being repurposed, if they're older, they're still accessing content. They're still using apps that developers are creating. They're probably using the Play Store. So this is a situation where Google probably still has a lot of motivation to be like, okay. You know, even for devices we wouldn't normally consider part of the ecosystem or as part of our strategy, we want something to unify some level of behavior, some kind of minimum experience. Google's relationship with developers, Android developers is a little bit off and on in terms of the Play Store and reviews. But if you end up with a lot of people in a bunch of regions where they buy a device maybe that either doesn't have DMS, or it's hacked on there in some way which does happen sometimes you get some kind of like installer package on there that leads you to the gms packages and then they download which has happened with oems like meizu at the very least google can ensure that these hacky workarounds are hopefully using the same tools google is using
1: to improve the experience so while i like the idea of having a one flag to rule them all in terms of like the low RAM flag enables all these optimizations It's clearly not the only thing you can do to optimize Android, because there are certainly many things that are intentionally not touched by that flag because they're touchy. They might negatively impact the user experience in certain ways. So I wanted to ask both of you, like, what are some of the other things, other configuration changes that can be made to further optimize Android or the Linux kernel for low RAM devices?
2: A big one that Google was really the first, I think, at least that I saw to start optimizing is the low-level firmware. So you look at the bootloader changes to uh, the Google Pixels over the years. Um, I mean, if we look back at the original Pixels, you wouldn't be able to get serial output out of the headphone jack with virtually, well, I won't say virtually, no. You had to know how to build the board, but it was there and it was ready for you to access. Nowadays, things like that are turned off, all forms of debugging anywhere possible on it, including DebugFS, and Sean may hate me for that comment, but in production, the more debugging you can kill, the less logging you can make it have. Then here's a trade-off because from a debugging perspective, as an OBM or someone who wants to know why it's crashing, you're not going to have a good idea. So you really have to ensure the product is completely ready for production and good. And then at that point, start optimizing those super finer things. Another big one, Clang has been a huge part of the Linux kernel over the last five, six years. It's been around for much longer, but it's been a huge part of the community in the last five or six years. Um, and Nathan Chance, actually a good old XDA friend of mine, I was recently hired. Uh, I'm officially hired. But it's being paid to work on clang for Linux, uh, which is purely based on optimizing the Linux kernel and, by effect, Android's use of the Linux kernel. That's been really helpful. Also, for any device maintainer out there, I'd recommend you just go look at the most recent Pixel, take the ZRAM value, and stuff that into your device. The most recent Pixel that matches your RAM configuration. I've yet to see that cause any problems. It's a significant value out on each device I've done before.
3: Some of the other changes you can do are going through your kernel and disabling everything that you aren't using or don't plan to use. Some basic examples are a lot of people in the developing community know about are like network file systems or driver in the kernel. It is huge. And my guess is neither you, David or Michelle have never used it. I bet. Because <laughs> it's a bunch of old and very niche networking drivers. So there was that, and then the other big thing is making sure your services and everything load in in the right order when you're booting up your device. Because, for example, there's obviously lots of bad behavior if you boot slowly or anything like that, but it can cause, oh, what's the word? There's In the past, there's been services that try and initialize a set amount of memory for themselves. But a lot of them calculated dynamically based off of how much RAM is left. So if you load those really early on, you are going to get upwards to 200 to 300 megabytes in some cases that are just allocated to the service that maybe only needs 20 to 30 megabytes. But it thought, oh, I have a lot. So I'm just going to be safe and give myself a lot because maybe in this super edge case, I'll use that much. But in normal day-to-day, you would never see it.
2: Yeah, overzealous allocation actually unallocating the memory when they're done. the um, mm-hmm. processes do that's huge. Another part, um, if you look at Pixel devices, I mean, if you look at something as simple as boot time tuning, right? Getting the thing to boot as quickly as it can and get to your home screen to be usable. If you can follow Google's changes and adapt them on well, the is Z2 Force, I adapted, I went through it kind of painstakingly over about a month and a half, got every change extracted out of there. We saved 15 seconds off of the first boot. Which is, you know, on first boot, that's a lot. On subsequent boots, it was about, I think it was four and a half. I'd have to check my stats, but that's still a decent chunk when your overall number is like 13. So if you're cutting a third of your boot time, and that's purely just in the order the services are started, the order partitions are mounted. Quite in case, if you mount all your partitions at once, you're going to have to deal with key master and the initial decryption of yeah, this is back when full disk encryption, the initial decryption that instead can be offloaded in later at the boot process. And also, become not a hold for the remainder of the processes that you're starting. So, you know, working with your most critical processes to get those started first, and then letting everything else sift into order, and not just assuming we're going linear.
1: Fascinating. So from what you told me, basically follow what Google's doing. Try to adapt as much as what they're doing. If it meets your specific device, like much. if you have a device analog that's analogous to one of their recent devices, then follow what they're doing. Cause they're generally pretty good at optimizing Android for their specific hardware needs. But of course, you know, they don't generally make very many low end devices. So if you're trying to do that, you probably need to do a lot of optimization work yourselves. And Google actually does provide some guidance, not all of its public, but there are a lot of optimizations you can do if you just look on the kernel communities, look up changes, they make to AOSP and see what they add and, and what they actually offer. Before we end this discussion, I want to ask you both one question that's kind of not directly related to memory management. But it's related to the application ecosystem in general. So one of the topics that I have been concerned with recently is the availability of 32-bit versus 64-bit applications. So way back in 2017, iOS dropped full compatibility with 32-bit applications, but most Android devices to this day still support them. Even though they're 64-bit hardware, they can support running 64-bit applications, but they still maintain compatibility with 32-bit, even though Google Play and a lot of other app stores have kind of said, you're not allowed to submit 32-bit apps anymore. And finally, there are some new chipsets shipping with CPUs that can't even execute 32-bit apps, but a lot of these Android Go devices shipping with two gigs or less of RAM, Google doesn't even recommend that they ship with 64-bit kernel user space. They're still concerned with 32-bit apps and execution entirely. So I wanted to ask both of you, how long do you think it'll take before we're completely done with 32-bit builds of Android for smartphones, is ever going to happen at the rate we're going with like the RAM improvements in low end devices.
2: I would have previously two years ago said we were headed towards 64 bit only future. I, I really would have. Android TV changed that. And I really think that at least in my workflow, that's the only 32 bit device left Google still actively makes, uh, they don't manufacture, but they make endorse and write the software for the 80 T three, which is a purely 32 bit OS device. It is a 64 bit capable chip with a 64-bit kernel that runs nothing but 32-bit code. And that's because it has no RAM. <laughs> the other part of that is the reference board they release. For example, they released the ADT3 with, you know, two gigs of RAM. When you look at the reference boards that use that, the Walmart on box and the uh, Dynalink box, those are two popular ones and uh, the Hertz boards uh, that use that reference as well, they're low RAM. I mean, like the Hertz boards are one gig and on Android one gig is, it's a tough sell nowadays. I don't think that 32-bit going anywhere because at least for the course of the ADT3, which is supposed to be supported until one version after T, is supposed to be the end of life date for that. They have to support 32-bit until then. So I'd be willing to stamp the guarantee we got at least two or three versions left. But I think 10 years from now, probably looking at 64-bit old, but we'll also be looking at the minimum RAM being a higher amount. Yeah,
3: I would definitely agree with that general timeline for smartphones. We might start seeing the Play Store start trying to force more and more to it, or maybe they'll enforce it just on smartphones sooner than that because they can force their OEMs to do a lot more for smartphones. But as Nolan said, for TVs, they're still 32-bit really only. And that also expands into the general Android TV, not just the box, Android TV box, but actually Android TVs, proper TVs. Those are all using ancient, terrible hardware under the hood. And so it's not going to go away until that whole industry changes how they build the TVs. And we've seen over the years, TVs, they're going for the bottom cheapest possible with the bare minimum number of specs for the price point. On the other side, the watches, I think also will not go really to 64-bit unless RAM gets cheaper and that kind of thing, because 64-bit actually does have a higher overhead on both the CPU and funneling up memory usage. I don't see watches switching over because you get no benefit really from it on the single application platforms.
0: And what's interesting about the TV use case is that there's really not a lot of motivation to go to 64-bit given the very limited number of applications the TVs have to support. You're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of apps for Android TV. Whereas for an Android smartphone, you're talking about literal tens of millions, potentially. Maybe not tens, but actual millions of apps. So it's a totally different set of demands. And you could, I mean, it seems feasible that you might end up in a situation where the Android TV is the only 32-bit Android platform remaining in circulation at some point relatively soon.
2: Well, you can also look towards the future for new platforms. The Android automotive platform is in its infancy; It's out publicly. People are using it. But people are just starting to really toy with it. That's 64-bit only. There are no 32-bit Android automotive targets. So we know that if Google can architect a brand new OS, it's going to be 64-bit only. I don't know how that'll play with things like Fuchsia, especially considering its purpose in the IoT world. IoT is stuck in 32 and held sometimes even older. You know, it's interesting to see because from their perspective, that's obviously the ideal setup. But we'll see if they actually make it there. So apart from TVs
1: and, and smartwatches that are basically unitaskers, there are a whole bunch of categories of devices that we're particularly interested in that don't particularly need a whole lot of RAM, like kiosk and point of sale terminals, because you're only interested in running one app at a time on them. And so memory management is not a particularly huge concern, or rather having access to huge amounts of memory is not a huge concern. But it certainly would be nice to ensure that the application you need running on, do you need to be pinned on screen at all times is never killed. So you need to be able to be aware of how Android manages memory, what services are available to you, how to actually put that app on display at all times. So if those questions interest you, then I recommend you seek us out at esper.io. Indeed. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't do the plug this week, folks. My, My audio situation is just suboptimal
0: but yeah if you want to reach out to us we're at esper.io you can book a demo if you want to understand about the differences between 32 and 64 bit and what it can mean for your dedicated android device in a fleet scenario we can help you answer some of those questions and again like michelle said if you could reach out to us at esper.io and thanks to our guests for joining us and michelle if you want to run outros
1: yeah thanks for joining us this week's episode nolan and sean so you both already mentioned where you work. Now I wanted to ask you, where can people find you if they want to follow you
2: for you know any developments or anything that's coming out of your personal projects? For me, following the direct defense Twitter, we do post a lot of the findings I get from the security side on there. Your CVEs up recently for Google TV. So mm-hmm. go take a look at that. My personal blog, edpjohnson.github.io is going to be most of my security research findings, and then uh, last thing on Twitter, Ola Johnson.
3: My username everywhere is Deadman96385. I primarily post on my Twitter, just maybe random, interesting devices I get, teardowns, talking about different software, and then my GitHub would probably be the other main one. That's where I put all my various projects,
1: stuff I'm working on. Yeah. Thank you both again for joining us on this week's episode of Android Bytes. And if you want to find out where you can follow David and I, that information is listed in the show description. So Thanks for joining us, and hopefully, we'll see you next week on Android Bytes.